All right. Uh, good evening. Welcome to uh, again to Reformed University Fellowship. As I said before, my name is Nick, and I am the campus minister for RUF. And I am again glad that you could be here. As a general reminder of where we've been so far this semester, we've been making our way through First John as part of our sermon series that you may know. We called it that because uh, some people that John has written to describe, uh, or some people uh, that John describes as antichrists have come into a young fledgling church. And John has written this letter to these unbelievers because they are in the wake of this departure, they're kind of unsure about who God is, what he has done, especially in Jesus and who they are in relation to that work. And John writes so that they may know the truth. Last week, the truth we looked at in the early part of 1 John 3 centered on what it meant to be a child of God. Centered on uh, particularly uh, what we as children should not do, which is sin. The mark of a Christian then in some sense to John, so far he's told us that it's what we do not do. It's that uh, we do not sin or we should not sin. And, and this week in 1 John three eleven through 24, if you want to turn there, that's where we'll be camped out tonight. John is going to continue to talk about what it means to be a child of God. But with a slightly different emphasis, instead of emphasizing what we should not do, he's going to talk about what we should do. And that is that we should love one another. The mark of a Christian for John is not just to negatively abstain from sin, but to positively engage the world in love. But as the one hit wonder Hadaway, I bet you didn't know that's who sang this song, once mused, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. No, anybody? Ninth of Roxbury? No? Okay. Uh, underrated Will Ferrell movie. Well, in our passage tonight, uh, John is going to argue for a very particular understanding of what love is what that word means, and how we are to demonstrate it. So let's read John's words and find out. This is 1 John three eleven through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask or whatever we receive from him, we, sorry, whatever we ask, 
we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the modern West, are we not? Are we muted? In the in the modern West, uh, love is. Oh, we didn't. Do did we not accept people into the group? Hey, sorry. Hi, everybody. Uh, online at home. Sorry. In the modern West, like I was saying, uh, we uh, tend to think of love as being our highest virtue. Uh, romantic comedies communicate to us that if we could simply meet our star-crossed lover at the top of the Empire State Building, or if we could find the perfect catch and not lose him, even though we've been trying to lose him for 10 days and gave him a love fern, if we could only do these things, then we'd live happily ever after. Books like Twilight or even Fifty Shades of Grey communicate to us that the forbiddenness of love, the excitement of it, is enough to make it worth whatever risk is involved. Uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine, from the 60s, dreams about a perfect and peaceful society without God or strife that is actually governed by love. We put so much expectation on love and how giving it and having it, whatever it is, will make us and our whole society whole. But while our passage starts in verse 11 with this, com- this commandment to love, that all John's hearers would have heard a million times, and we also have heard a million times that we should love people, right? We're, we're well-versed in this. Bef- while our passage starts there, we must recognize that love is not defined by our popular notion of it, uh, whatever they may be. Instead, love is defined by God. What is loving is defined by God. Specifically, in verse 16, John defines it for us. By this we know love, that he, meaning Jesus, laid down his life for us. That is a, a far cry from some of those other ways I've described love as being devoid of even a God, or maybe saturated in uh, sentiment, warm feelings, or maybe even being nice to people. These things, according to John, are not love. To love is to die to oneself. And we know this, John tells us, because it is how Christ modeled it to us as he died on the cross. That act in human history has fundamentally changed the aim of the human life because it has fundamentally changed the human life. (laughs) All John's advocacy for our own love in this passage, it ultimately stems from that reality, from that being the defining story of our lives. By dying on the cross, Jesus appeased God's anger and his wrath that's rightfully against our sins and failures, and instead he gave us his righteousness. He received our punishment of death, and by sheer grace, we receive his righteousness and life. That, to John, is love. 
And that robust version of love is a love that animates and motivates us to follow in Jesus' name and pattern of self-giving love. That's John's actual main idea. It's where we're going to camp out tonight. Uh, Main idea, if you're a note taker, this is maybe something to take down. Uh, The main idea we're going to be driving home tonight is this. Because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another. Because God has shown us that kind of love that I've just described, John is going to say that we should love one another. Tonight, as we talk through our passage, we'll look at how we do that. John's going to give us three ways that we are to love one another. Three ways, inwardly, outwardly, and confidently. I'll walk through all three of those again, but if you're note-taking, you want to know where we're going. Inwardly, outwardly, and confidently. All right, so let's start with this first point that because God has shown us such great love, we should love inwardly. We should love one another inwardly. Look at me at verses 11 through 15. 11 through 15. I think it's over. Yep, there it is. Okay. And in verse 12, John illustrates that he first means, like what he first means by loving one another. Uh, and he does it by illustrating it uh, with the biblical story from Genesis 4 of Cain and Abel. If you're not familiar, these are the first sons that ever exist. They are birthed of Adam and Eve and Uh, basically the story goes like this. Abel humbly gains God's favor in his sacrifices. He is willing to give up the meat that he hunts down and gets, and he quickly becomes the standout in his family. He has God's favor, and as the second born, this is actually particularly harsh to his brother Cain. Uh, It's a deep insult in the ancient world because the oldest son, Abel, sorry, the oldest son, Cain, uh, ought to have rightfully the standing as the standout in the family. He's supposed to be the one who gets the greatest inheritance. He's supposed to be the one that has it all together. And yet, Cain is rejected by God. In fact, uh, God describes him in that passage in Genesis 4 as not doing well with sin crouching at the door. In jealousy and in bitterness, Cain murders his brother Abel. This, John argues in verse 13, is really just the way of the world, right? All people are of this kind of world. Without God's love for us in Jesus as our primary identity, all that is left to define ourselves is whatever we can grab onto here on earth, right? Our accomplishments, our status, our acceptance from other people, and the reality is when we make those things the primary identifiers of our lives, what will happen is inevitably other people will become obstacles to your happiness. They will become obstacles to you retaining the wealth that you have. There'll be obstacles to you gaining the status that you want. There'll be obstacles to you getting the acceptance you crave from your friends. Unless we think we're nothing like that, right? Unless we, unless we, worry like, oh, but I've never murdered anybody, right? It's not that bad. John hits at a very important point in verse 15 that leaves all of us probably without excuse. When we hate our brother or sister inwardly, when we despise the gifting of someone else, your lack of inward thankfulness for God's gifting of this other person, what that is, is murder. It's spiritual murder because it robs God of his glory. It's sin. 
It, God dispenses his gifts as he chooses, and you begrudging that is sin. If this sounds familiar, it's because John is really just parroting what Jesus taught. Uh, he would have heard it, uh, and we had this episode recorded for us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. We often think about God's commandments as the standard to live up to, and that's sort of right, but the reality is uh, we, th- we, we mistake the idea that we should just avoid breaking any of them, right? We think about God's commands and his laws as, as the, the ceiling. Like as long as I, I can shoot for that, and as long as I don't break anything that God has told me to do, as long as I don't violate any of his commandments, then I'll be doing well. But Jesus reveals the truth in Matthew 5 that John is echoing here. God's law, the way he's revealed himself, like do not murder his laws that are more prohibitive. Those are the floor of ethical behavior, not the ceiling, right? Jesus is blowing up our paradigm. We think, how much do I have to do to get by? Because we are sinful, right? We tend to think, what's the bare minimum I would need to do to be right with God? And Jesus says, you guys think about the floor. You think, uh, how do I not murder somebody? I just don't want to actually like kill somebody else. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's the floor. That's the baseline of what I expect of you. But rather, what I really want is the ceiling. The ceiling is love. Prohibitive laws like the ones we find in the last half of the Ten Commandments, they restrain evil and they describe sins that we should not commit but they leave out the sins that we also can omit. For example, as a baseline, right, we're not to murder people, but the ceiling of this law is that uh, we should love people. Not just that we shouldn't hate them, but that we should actually love them. And this is why in verse 14, John identifies inward love as opposed to hate as the inevitable fruit of the Christian life, right? That you, you're not focused anymore on the floor, <laughs> Of, of what you, what the bare minimum you could do to not anger God. Instead, the Christian, by virtue of being loved, wants to extend that love even in our own hearts to others. We celebrate their successes. We don't look to the things of this world to justify us, to tell us that we are happy enough, that we're good looking enough, that we're funny enough. Instead, we can love our neighbor from our heart and rejoice in their successes. Uh, the Broadway hit, Hamilton, I don't know if you guys have heard of that, it's kind of a big deal, uh, is really the embodiment of this idea, right? Where all the, if, if you make all the world simply boil down to being successful and powerful and getting into the room where it happens, what you have is Aaron Burr. You have a man who drives himself crazy trying to get the money and power and fame that he so longs for. And he literally cannot stand, cannot live with Hamilton's success. And so he murders him. It's Cain and Abel played out in real time in our history books. Jesus frees us from this dynamic, frees us from having to be in the room where it happens or we're not enough, frees us from having to have the approval of our friends or of a boss, or of a grade, and instead we are justified based on what Christ has done, and therefore inwardly we can love our neighbor. Dispositionally, we are enough 
without all those things. Because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another inwardly. But this is kind of the, the most popular sentiment about love, right? If I asked Joe Schmo in the street, you know, what is love? They'd be like, when you feel really rosy and butterflies inside, you know, that might be what they'd say. Or if they were a little bit more mature, they'd be like, but you really feel it and you're going to commit to feeling it. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's about as much as a lot of people can tell us what love is, is that it's an emotion or a sentiment. Is that all that God demonstrates to us that love is? Well, that brings us to our second point, that because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another outwardly, not just inwardly, but outwardly. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. True Christian love is more than mere sentiment. It may begin there in the heart, as John alludes in verse 17, that that's where biblical love comes from, but biblical love is also an action. Love is nothing less than the same pattern of Jesus giving up his own life for his people. And this high ideal sounds kind of attractive to us, doesn't it? A little bit. We like to think, uh, you know, the chances are pretty slim that you'd ever have to do it. But, you know, if you really had to, you might be able to make the ultimate sacrifice for somebody. You might die for somebody else. That's a, that's a good thing. We, I want to be a hero. That We tend to think that this is something that we might want to do. Uh, in fact, we play it out even in our, our culture if you've ever seen a movie uh, called The Quiet Place, this came out two years ago. And if you know that I'm about to spoil it, it is what it is. You had two years. There's this, there's this scene where a monster creature is about to kill and eat two small children of uh, like the father character in the film that's played by John Krasinski. They're in this truck and the creature can only hear, he can't see. And the kids have made noise. And so the creature comes after them. He's going to eat them. He's literally crushing the car with them in it. And then in a, like a moment of sheer selfless love, the father, John Krasinski, signs to his deaf daughter who's in the cab of the car that he loves her and that he has always loved her. And then he lets out the most guttural scream he can muster and the monster alien thing comes and devours him, leaving his kids to be able to, fr- to flee. Uh, when I first saw that in the movie theater, like I cried. I, in the middle of like a scary movie, I was like, what is happening? I did, not, I did not buy this. I did not sign up for this. But it's hitting at something powerful. That, that movie hits at something very deep within us, that it's beautiful to be Christ-like and dying for another person. It, felt, it feels motivating to see that love displayed. But look at verse 17. John brings us back down to earth in verse 17. Sure, we all want to be John Krasinski in that movie. We all want to be a hero who's willing to give up everything for somebody else. Uh, maybe even, even better, we think, I'd like to be like Jesus, the better John Krasinski, giving up my life or somebody else if the occasion called for it. But here's the kicker. We're already in that occasion. John imagines a scenario in which a brother needs real things that you have, and he does not. Food, clothing, shelter. If we possess these things, material goods of any magnitude, and yet we withhold them from our neighbor, we really have our answer for whether or not we actually want to put other people ahead of us. 
we have our answer of whether or not we actually believe that selfless and self-giving love motivates our lives and is good. Now, I know this. Y'all are all broke college kids. So you're like, this doesn't apply to me because I don't have any money to give. In fact, you should give me money, right? That's, that's what you're thinking right now. And I, I want to say three things to you. First, I'd like to submit to you that you are not as poor as you think. Uh, you live in the wealthiest country to ever exist. You probably have running water in your house. You have, I, I assume, probably a TV. Maybe you don't have a TV, but you probably have a computer, uh, something. Uh, you have a roof over your head. You're not starving. Uh, God has given you some amount of resources to steward. And that means that you have things that other people do not have. You are not excluded from John's rebuke or from his encouragement for you to give. Second, though you don't have a lot now, I'll say this, you will soon. You will soon. And one day you're going to graduate and it's going to be tempting to be more stingy with your money than you are now. You think that once you get a job, you graduate, you get a job, it'll get easier and you'll be able to give away a lot more of your money. But the reality is the opposite is true. It plays itself out over and over and over again. The more you make, the more entitled you're going to feel to keeping that money. You worked hard for it. You went to school. You took out loans. You worked. Other people didn't, right? There's, there's this rule that like the more that you get, the more that you think you're entitled to a higher lifestyle. It's why you don't find a lot of, you know, multimillionaires living in shacks, right? That as you, as you get more, it's going to be tempting not to give more. But this, I, I want you to think back. What did Nick say about giving? I'm telling you now to your future self, do not let that be the case for you, right? Give, give of your possessions. But uh, I'll say this lastly, thirdly, in the meantime, right? While you really don't have a lot, I know most of y'all work like two jobs, 2.5 jobs or whatever, and you don't have hardly any money. And I understand that. What I would say is simply this, that that doesn't mean that you have no possessions. You still have your time and you still have your talents, right? You may lack treasure, but you have time and talents. And I, the, the question you need to ask yourself is how do you spend it? Right? How do you spend your time and your talents? Because if you won't spend those wisely, I can guarantee you won't spend your money any wiser. Do you seek service opportunities like cleaning out riverbeds so people can have clean drinking water or stocking shelves at a food bank? You have, if you have an able body, then you have a talent. And the question is, you've got to ask yourself, do you use them well or do you hoard them? Right? John is saying that the pattern of the Christian life is Jesus has given up everything for you and we are tempted to be stingy with that, but that we should be liberal with our finances and with lots of, like we should be liberal with the things that we own and actually stingy with our bodies. It's kind of the opposite ethic of our culture. Because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another first inwardly but also outwardly. But none of us is perfect at this stuff, right? We're not like really, really good at loving people all the time. And so that might, uh, I think John knows that. So he moves into this next paragraph here. Uh, What do we do when we feel intimidated by the prospect of living this kind of radical self-giving life? 
What do we do when we don't measure up to that? Well, that brings us to our third point. Because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another confidently. Look with me at verses 19 through 24. This last paragraph can be a little confusing at first. Uh, John's kind of smashing two perspectives together, one earthly perspective. And every time you talk about prayer, you're also looking at it a little bit from God's perspective, that he answers all things if you ask for them. But that might be true from God's perspective, but it may not always be true from our perspective. He doesn't give us exactly what we ask, but that doesn't mean he doesn't answer Right, So we're, it might be a little confusing when you first look at this, but what I want to point out is that the overarching goal of this last paragraph is clear. The love that John has been advocating for in the first two paragraphs is not meant to be something that you just summon from within. It's not, this is not, uh, as a friend of mine says, this is not Nike Christianity. You're not just going to go do it, right? Okay, Jesus, I'm going to pull, up my, pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to walk in your path. I'm going, to, I'm going to start being more of a giver. I'm going to start doing all these things. No, the confidence you have is found in God's provision for you. In verse 22, we are told that God will give us what we ask. Now, that might seem that God is like a vending machine, right? He gives you what you ask. You punch in the code and he gives you what you ask as long as you keep his commandments. That's the currency. But keep in mind that all along, John has been assuming something of his readers, that they are, in fact, true Christians. That unlike the Antichrist that departed from the truth and Jesus, these people that John is writing to, and by extension, us in the room, if we are true Christians, we can expect that God will, in fact, provide what we ask, and that we should expect that we live upright lives. Right? He's not saying that if you keep his commandments and do what pleases him, he will give you whatever you ask. He's saying, you do these things already, and because you're a true Christian who does these things already, you should expect that your father, who really does love you, will genuinely give you what you ask for. Right? It's, it's logical that if you are doing the things that Christians do because you are a Christian, God will treat you like you are a Christian. He will enable us to love, verse 23 says, just as he commanded us. Um, keeping in mind, you know, all these things that like we already are supposed to be Christians, that, that, that the people that John is writing to, he's assuming that you have that, uh, that desire in your heart already. And you should expect that God will provide for you. He will enable you to love, as verse 23 tells us. Now, John also knows that we struggle with that reality, that we struggle and that our hearts, or how we normally talk about this in the 21st century, we call it our conscience, will sometimes point to our sin, as in verses 20 and 21, and, and it'll tell us that, that, that our sin precludes us from truly being saved and being able to ask God for things, being able to ask him to help us love one another. Our hearts, our consciences will condemn us and tell us that the lie, uh, a lie that God does not want to hear from us. He doesn't want to hear from you. You've messed up too many times. You you don't really believe this, right? Nick was just saying that the Christians do all these loving things and I don't. And so like God doesn't want to hear from me. He doesn't care. 
And our shame precludes us from prayer and therefore the very help we need to follow his commandments, right? We, it's this cycle that you get caught up in. This is a, it's a vicious cycle because you think God doesn't want to help you. So you don't ask, you don't get, and therefore you don't do as God asks. And then you think God doesn't love you. And so you don't do as yet. Like it's, it just happens over and over and over again. And John wants you to know that that's not the way it's supposed to be, that that's not the truth for you if you place your faith in Jesus. In fact, John has already blown up this thought pattern in 228. We looked at it last week. We have no reason for shame before the Father. And here in verse 20, John tells us why, again, God is greater than our heart. Now, that can mean one of two things. One of two things. That could mean that God is an even more terrifying judge than our own conscience. Oh, you think that you're a bad person? You don't know the half of it, says John. He knows everything, even the stuff that you don't want to admit to yourself is a problem. Even the things that you don't yet recognize about yourself that are sinful, God knows and he is powerful enough to forgive it. In that case, we should have confidence because our heart isn't the final word on who we are. Right? Not even our own estimate of ourselves is enough to justify us. Or it could mean this, that God is more powerful than our hearts. Not that he's a greater judge, but that he is more capable of telling us the truth than our own hearts. His love is greater than our hearts' lies. He knows everything in the sense that he knows all things will turn out for us in the end well that he is for us and not against us. Either way, either way you understand God being greater than our hearts. The point is clear. Our own hearts are secondary to God's decrees over us. Whatever we think about the truth, it's secondary to what God's truth is. And we are not alone in our endeavor to love as Jesus loved. When you leave this room, it's not God sending you out and saying, good luck. It is that you can always talk to him and ask, and he will deliver what you have asked for, that he can enable you to love one another. But it's not uh, just prayer that gives us access to God. Look at verse 24, John's last thought here. We also know that God abides in us in that we are given the Holy Spirit if we place our trust in him. God's spirit is the third person of the Trinity that raised Jesus from death to life. And he has been given to us to aid us in our own dying and resurrecting love, right? Our own desire to love. Most of you uh, probably have not seen this movie. Uh, It might actually be older than you are. But in 2002, a movie uh, by the name of Like Mike, was released. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Little Bow Wow plays the, the, the protagonist, the main character, his name's Calvin. Basically, the movie is a spinoff or a riff on the classic 90s Nike marketing campaign around Air Jordans, that it must be the sneakers, that if you bought a pair of Air Jordans, uh, you could dribble and pass and shoot and even dunk, even though you're like five, four, eight or whatever, you're like a four, eight little kid. You can dunk if you have the right shoes. You could be like Mike. That's the, the idea. Well, Calvin finds a pair of what are assumedly Michael Jordan's old sneakers. 
And when he puts them on, he actually can play like MJ. His abilities, his powers, MJ's abilities and his powers actually run through him to the point that he becomes a point guard in the NBA, right? This like four, three run to the kid. What John is saying here is that unlike Nike, God is not simply selling you a tagline, you know, giving you a pat and telling you to go out there and do it. Right? He's not promising a lot and delivering little. He's not telling you that you can walk as Jesus walked and then leaving you to do it. What we have in God's spirit is better than some pair of sneakers and an empty promise. We have access to God's power and his assurance that he is with us until the very end. Right? That he will even death, in death, resurrect us. That not even death can conquer you. And therefore, you, like Jesus, do not even have to fear death itself. That that is our animating and powerful truth to love one another, to give of ourselves. Because we know that God is in us and with us, enabling us to do so. And he will not give up on his own people. Because God has shown us such great love, we ought to love one another inwardly, outwardly, and confidently. Let's pray.